Welcome to the On Messianic Judaism podcast. Hi, this is Danielle Nassim, and today we'll continue our series on the history of the Messianic Jewish movement by telling the story of the very first days of the new Messianic movement in Jerusalem, a movement that outsiders would later call the Sect of the Nazarenes, but which Luke and insiders would call the Way, or Haderech. This is episode 9 in our series called Heady Days, Unexpected Growth. The amazing events of Shavuot, with thousands immersed in Jerusalem's mikvahot as they acknowledged the messiahship of Yeshua attested to by the signs they were witnessing and the testimony of his resurrection, gave way to heady days for the early Messianic Jewish movement. In those days, the movement had no name, and apart from Yeshua's followers, the eleven from his inner circle, and the disciples, both men and women associated with them, it had no formal leadership. According to Luke's account, the primary catalyst of the movement was indisputably the injustice of Yeshua's execution, coupled with the vindication afforded by his resurrection once they accepted and came to believe in it. In the background were all the hopes of the Jewish nation, which was yearning to be a free people in their own land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. So, what was the earliest Messianic Jewish movement really like? And what characterized its daily life? And what were, in more details, the expectations that powered it and gave it legs? Our starting point is a text in the book of Acts, which tells us of the life of the early community shortly after the remarkable Shavuot that had propelled it into prominence. Acts 2 tells us that they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the emissaries, now we call those the apostles in English, and to fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayers. Fear lay upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were happening through the emissaries. And all who believed were together having everything in common. They began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all, as any had need. Day by day they continued with one mind, spending time at the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were sharing meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord was adding to their number those being saved. The picture is that of an eschatologically oriented community. In other words, a community that was conducting its affairs and was growing and functioning in the expectation of the imminent or any moment arrival of the kingdom of God. Thus, fear fell on those who heard their message, clearly an expectation that these truly were messianic days and the prophesied end of the current order truly was near. In this expectation, as has happened many times in history, people began to sell and share their property and possessions. After all, who would need them when Messiah would come and usher in his perfect rule? Further, the movement was a growing one, with a momentum that kept it going, even as they prayed daily in the temple, visible to friend and foe alike. In those prayers, there is no reason to think that they did anything other than pray in the manner of all Jews of the time, standing, facing the temple, reciting some prayers by heart, also praying to some degree extemporaneously three times a day, 
there's no indication that their thinking was so different from other Jews that they ceased to participate in offering sacrifices. In fact, years later, Shaul, the Apostle Paul, as he's called in English, personally paid for sacrifices, both on his behalf and that of four other people. Also, eating together on a regular basis, they provided for the needs of the poor among them and kept their hopes and faith alive. These meals were not, as some suppose, an essentially religious action any more than any meal is religious, with its blessings before and after. They weren't focused on remembering Yeshua's death, but rather the significance of his death coupled with his resurrection and his soon return to establish his kingdom. As Johannes Weiss tells us, there's nothing in the narratives of the book of Acts to suggest that the death of Jesus was central to the thought and feeling expressed in them. The linking of communal meals with remembrance of Yeshua seems to have been formalized later, as is seen in Didache chapters 9, 10, and 14. In this ancient record, remembrance of Yeshua is not primarily regarding his death or sacrifice, but for the life and knowledge which has been made known through Yeshua. And it was done in Jewish fashion as a blessing before the meal and the eating, and then the reciting of Birkat HaMazon, the grace after meals, following it. As such, it later continued to retain this twofold structure, as another scholar, John Krausan, observed from 1 Corinthians 11, with the bread blessed before the meal and the wine afterwards. The leadership seems to have begun with the eleven surviving disciples, who now turned themselves shlichim, or emissaries. With them was a newly nominated member, Matthias, clearly added in because the number twelve, twelve shlichim, was very important. Nevertheless, Yeshua's brother Jacob was also soon to attain prominence. Eusebius, a church historian from ancient times, claims that Jacob was the first to receive from the Savior and his apostles the episcopacy of the Jerusalem church and was called Christ's brother, as the sacred books show. He claims, quoting Clement, that Peter, James, and John, after the ascension of the Savior, did not claim preeminence because the Savior had specially honored them, but chose James, or Jacob, the righteous as bishop of Jerusalem. The early presence of Jacob is attested by the Apostle Paul, who stated that three years after he met Yeshua on the way to Damascus, he went to Jerusalem to visit with Peter, and he says, I stayed with him fifteen days, but I saw no other shlichim except Jacob, the Lord's brother. These leaders were the teachers of the movement. Their influence cannot be overemphasized as their teaching carried the imprint of Yeshua's teaching upon them, both before and following his resurrection. Theirs was an inner Jewish movement, and all the norms of Jewish communal organization and faith were theirs. In Jewish society, teachers were highly honored, and by virtue of their authoritative teaching, they were granted a high degree of respect. It is not surprising, then, that Luke's account is not of any hierarchical structure where people set themselves up in authority, but is a picture of grassroots acceptance of the transformative teaching that the Shlichim were bringing and an acknowledgement of their authoritativeness in response. 
This teaching, as was Yeshua's, was firmly within the bounds of Second Temple Judaism. While it was opposed by Jerusalem's religious and communal establishment, it seems that it was on the basis of their claims that Yeshua had risen from the dead more than any doctrinal or halachic law issue. As any religious Jews, particularly pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem, as many as them had, would often do, those of the movement davened or prayed, taught and learned in the temple precincts. In a crowded city of the Levant, that part of the world, the temple may well have been one of the few places, if not the only place, in the city where large crowds could gather to learn, particularly as large gatherings elsewhere would have fallen under the watchful eyes of the Roman authorities who were ever suspicious and vigilant against untoward violent messianism in their Jewish subjects. They had had far too many riots. Far more than the temples of the pagans, the temple of Jerusalem had tremendous meaning and a pull on the Jews. While the pagans had many different temples for their many gods, for the Jews there was one only, as Josephus put it, one temple. As he said, there ought to be but one temple for one God. He said this as he argued against the Egyptian opponent, Appion. The temple was therefore a unifying source, force for all Jews, whether Pharisees or Sadducees or Zealots, whether strictly observant according to their tradition or not, no matter what their minhag, their custom, if they participated in the temple worship, they laid aside their differences. Within the temple courts, within bounds of course, they could teach freely and they could gather and there would always be some who would be interested in hearing their teaching. When not in the temple, it seems that Yeshua's followers met, naturally, in private homes, and as things developed, they met in some of the synagogues of the city. Of these, there were some 394 synagogues, houses of study, and schools, according to the Babylonian Talmud. The Yerushalmi accounts for even more in the city of Jerusalem. So even allowing for some rhetorical exaggeration, there were obviously a large number of synagogues in the city. And at this point, the term church begins to appear in Acts in reference to this early community. Now, this term is, of course, really misleading because it suggests that now they were a different entity. People understand the word church as to mean something Christian. However, the idea of ecclesia that arose maybe in the 4th century, the idea of ecclesia as a religious organization and as religious buildings, which is the thought of the word church today, was worlds apart from how the concept of ecclesia or assembly was understood from its inception 600 years BCE up to and including the first century CE. In other words, in the Jewish world, there was a completely different view of it. If the New Testament is a guide to this, it's interesting to see Ralph Corner's observation that the only communities to call themselves ecclesia are those related to Paul, John, or Matthew. In the Jewish world, it was but one of 22 different terms which were used for societies, fellowships of Jewish people. 
Interestingly, Luke wrote in the past tense, which tells us that this somewhat ideal state of affairs did not last forever. But it did for a time, and later stages of it are mentioned later in the book of Acts. Perhaps the communal mode of living that was somewhat like that of the Essenes in Qumran was ill-suited and just did not work in Jerusalem's urban environment. Luke doesn't tell us all about those who no doubt emigrated from the city to their homelands during this time in small numbers, or the larger number who likely moved back to the Galil, the Galilee since the majority of those who had identified themselves with Yeshua's movement before his death were Galileans. Halachically, the early disciples maintained their adherence to Jewish norms. Those norms were by definition more flexible in those days than they are now. These differences are recorded for us today in the Mishnah's frequent references to the different interpretations and practices of the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Those alone, two schools in Jerusalem that are foundational to the Talmud today. Never mind the views of various other rabbinic and temple authorities in Jerusalem and other groups like the Essenes. If anything, the heightened sense of these early believers in Messiah Yeshua, of the imminence of the kingdom of God, and their realization that in their own days God had intervened in the history of Israel by bringing them the Messiah, resulted in an intensified commitment to the mitzvot, the commands of God. There are some writings written a couple centuries later that we call the pseudo-Clementine homilies that possibly reflect an ancient memory of these times and the way things were done. And in those homilies, seemingly written by a Jewish believer in Yeshua, there's the record that, Then said Peter, the law of God was given by Moses without writing to seventy wise men to be handed down that the government might be carried on by succession. The correspondence to the Mishnah with its assertion of the value of the oral Torah is clear, as the opening words of Pirkei Avot record that Moses received the law from Sinai and handed it down to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets handed it down to the men of the great assembly. Well, they both seem to have had, according to this account, at least some respect for the oral Torah, an interesting perspective on the life of these early believers. The earliest days of the new Messianic Jewish movement soon gave way to a more sustained presence in Jerusalem. At this point, the movement had no name in particular, but its very existence was disturbing the fragile religious landscape of the city. Jerusalem, the city that the entire Jewish world looked to, had tremendous significance, and in time, what happened within it was bound to have an effect on the Jewish world as a whole. The Shlichim were certainly cognizant, aware of this, and their memory of Yeshua's command that their witness of Yeshua should begin in Jerusalem and reach the ends of the earth was no doubt in their minds. Now, as we've seen, the temple was a regular place of prayer, not only for all observant Jews, but for Yeshua's disciples among them. It is in this context that we begin to hear of miracles performed by the Shlichim. 
In particular, a miracle performed by Peter at one of the temple gates caused wonder and astonishment that gave him the opportunity to reprise his earlier speech at Shavuot. It characterizes those early days as days in which miracles were performed by God's power in the name of Yeshua, providing opportunities to speak about him. In this, it's important to see that the essentially theocentric, God-Father-centered nature of Judaism was not transgressed in the slightest by the proclamation of Yeshua's Messiahship. Rather, Yeshua was presented in a similar role to that of Moses, as prophesied by Moses himself. All that was happening was declared to be in fulfillment of God saying to Abraham, In your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Among the members of the new party were people such as Nicodemus, known to us initially from the Gospel of John, but a personality who also occurs in the Talmud and Midrash. In Babylonian Avodah Zarah, Etana taught, Just as the sun stood still for Joshua, so did the sun stand still for Moses and for Nakdimon Ben-Gorion. Now this seems to be the same Nicodemus. In other words, Nakdimon Ben-Gorion, and the story of why they say this is fascinating if you want to look into it. The story... Nakdimon Ben-Gorion is of tremendously great stature according to this Tana, one of the early rabbinic figures. Richard Borkham identifies this Nakdimon with none other than the Nicodemus we know from John 3 and 1939. The Nicodemus who came to Yeshua by night and later assisted in giving him an honorable burial. How did Nakdimon Ben-Gorion managed to negotiate his high position in society and associate with Yeshua's followers? We must remember not to project the later so-called parting of the ways, and it is such a highly questionable term. We must remember not to project this back onto these earlier days when people from all parties and societal strata joined the movement. Such public teaching could not be conducted without attracting the attention of the temple authorities, of course. Kohanim, priests, Sadducees, and the temple police are singled out as intervening at this point. Despite imprisonment and a serious caution from them, however, the Shlichim could not be kept in jail, and their release was followed by a second shaking at their meeting place, as at Shavuot, accompanied with continued boldness in their preaching. Conflict with the religious authorities continued to increase, however, culminating in the stoning to death of a leader called Stephen. We'll get to him in a minute. Soon after the initial explosion of messianic expectation regarding Yeshua, his resurrection, and the prospects that that created for the establishment of God's reign over Israel and the nations, came the difficulties that rapid growth inevitably brings. In the midst of this early explosive growth of the community, difficulties arose in distributing aid to the poor among them. In particular, Greek-speaking widows were not receiving their fair share. As Solomon Grazel has commented, the issue with the Hellenists was symptomatic of the community's success, in his words, so that in the course of a few years, the Greek Jews among the believers in Jesus far outnumbered the native Palestinians. In order to address the problem, this resulted in the appointment of seven administrators to fairly distribute the aid. 
Stephen, who was later murdered, was one of these. From his name, it seems that he too was a Greek speaker, although from the speech he is recorded as giving, that did not mean that his understanding of the Hebrew Bible was in any way deficient. The killing of Stephen followed an extensive summary by Luke of his defense, which is meant to depict the character of his teaching. It is no mistake that his stoning took place immediately following his statement, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is almost word for word the statement that Yeshua made when he stood before the elders, priests, and Torah scholars saying, But from now on the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the power of God. Both resulted in the capital punishment. So how could capital punishment be performed in public while the Romans were in power? We're not absolutely sure, but it's quite possible that at this point Pilate turned a blind eye. Another possibility, which is supported by Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, is that it was during the absence of a governor of Judea after Pilate's recall to Rome in 36 CE and before the arrival of his successor. At this point, we are at pains to emphasize that the followers of Yeshua and Ishlichim were fully within the parameters of Second Temple Judaism. Theirs was not a different faith than that of other Jews, but a realization that Messiah had come as promised by the prophets, expressed in a desire for other Jews to also realize that fact and prepare themselves for the coming kingdom. That kingdom would be based in Jerusalem where they were remaining. It would be the son of David ruling over Israel and over all the nations of the earth. So far, we've followed the story of Messianic Judaism as it has now become a movement or maybe rather a Jewish party like that of the Pharisees that expects the Messianic reign to begin and is waiting. So far, our sources for this history are primarily from the New Testament, which is itself a Jewish text, some of it addressed to other Jews and other parts of it to Gentiles. In our next podcast, we're going to see this movement explode beyond the bounds of Jerusalem and beyond the bounds of the New Testament record. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast to get notified as soon as that is published. Thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. And do me a favor, take a minute to like this podcast and leave a positive review wherever you are listening to it. Support our podcast by going to onmessianicjudaism.com. Next podcast, join us as we find out what happened when this early community dispersed throughout the known world. My email address is daniel at nasim.org and I'm looking forward to your feedback. I am Dr. Daniel Nassim, and this is On Messianic Judaism.